Oh, uh-oh. Pressure's on Mike and Hunt. <laughs> well, uh, Mike and I, Mike and I will do our best to make up for Jason not being here. Uh, I'll let you guys know if our uh, viewer numbers go down as a result. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S. For additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Let's start. I First of all, I dropped Exhibit D because Exhibit D was a memo that I'd worked on and Brian worked on and Max worked on. And it was basically a commitment or, a, or, or trying to create a commitment to redo a lot of the way our government works so that Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, all these liabilities could be better managed. And having watched the House Speaker and his staff and the White House staff come to a conclusion on the debt ceiling, I think for investors like all of us, we should just focus on the near term. And the near term, I guess before we talk about oil and gas prices, let's look at exhibit A is the near term. And if you look at 2019 in exhibit A and you take out all the spending for Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, federal pensions, veterans' pensions, and interest, and defense. The remaining amount of expenditure is $910 billion. And 2019, of course, was pre-COVID. And if you see what COVID did to our budget, if you look at 2020 and 2021, that remaining number went up by like three times as a way to try to come through COVID. In 22, the 3 billion or 2.9 billion turned into 1.9. And the forecast for this year uh, was 1.4 and 1.4 going forward. The deficit based on that for 23 and going forward is around one and a half trillion dollars. That is too high. That is not sustainable. And the key here is to have the U.S. federal debt held by the public not be too much more than our gross national product, which is up top, 26.2 predicted for this year, with our debt held by the public, 25.7. If we can take a significant chunk out of that trillion four, say 10% of it, 
which I think is what this bill does, it becomes much easier to hold that number debt held by the by the by the public within our GNP. Now, <clears throat> it would be better to get that percentage going down, but holding it flat is at least a start at getting that done. So as investors, so that we don't get ourselves paralyzed, I think we should welcome this agreement. It is bipartisan. They're going to have a vote in the House this evening. I think the current count is 150 Republicans. They need 218 to pass, and there'll be you know 80 or 90 Democrats, and then they'll get it through the Senate in the next two days. So, in terms of impact on our investment, I think we should assume that that it'll we'll have a better next six months than the last six months. And that doesn't mean to say that we don't have a recession in store. Just a reminder on recessions, it's two consecutive quarters of real GNP decline. And we had two last year of consecutive real GNP declines. But because the unemployment rate was so low, under 4%, the economists who, who decide whether we're having a recession or not by committee can't call the recession. It's possible that the same thing will happen this year. With that, just want to go through oil price situation because there's an OPEC plus meeting uh, this weekend. And um, if you look at exhibit C, the three largest producers, of course, the US, Saudi Arabia, and Russia. And the Saudi oil minister has been critical of the Russians for not taking the half a million barrels a day that they agreed to of reduction. And when Saudi Arabia has had this situation in the past, if they get upset enough, they do what they call their market share strategy. If Saudi Arabia decided to do a market share strategy in the next period of time, the price of oil, which is WT, measured by WTI, just under 70, would go to some much lower number. I mean, big 50, big 45. I don't think it's likely that they'll do that, but it is possible. Now, so the market is fully supplied. Now, with the Ukraine war, everyone assumed oil would go to $120, but what has happened is the Russians at Ten and a half million barrels a day have been able to figure out logistics to move the oil to India or China or wherever. So the oil is moving and they have not really had to curtail their production. Demand, if you look at the liquid fuel consumption, we're the largest, the second largest is China. That increase from predicted to almost over 16 million barrels a day. That may not happen because the bounce back in China from COVID does not include commodities. So whether you're talking iron ore, met coal, copper, oil, LNG, everything is slower than it otherwise would be because 
the Chinese economy run growing 6% in real terms is probably going to grow 3% in real terms. I don't think it has too much to do with ending the COVID lockdown. I think it has more to do with the Chinese economy being pretty mature. In the past, when we've had this, this type of slowdown in China, they have added a lot of building, but they're way overbuilt. They have way more apartments and office buildings than they need. And I think they've made a decision at the standing committee level to not pursue that strategy this time. So it's not so good for commodities, and it will impact all commodities, including oil. On natural gas, these sheets, these these demand levels, this is Exhibit B, have been adjusted in the past couple of months. LNG exports is the is the big uh, new demand. You can see it went from around six Bs a day in 2019 up to around 13 currently, and it's supposed to go all the way up by 27 or 28 to you know double, like maybe 27 or 28 Bs. It takes a long time to build these LNG trains, and the storage change, which is the difference between supply and demand in 2020, which was a very difficult year with gas averaging 220, was a billion, 200 million. Look at the difference between supply and demand in 23 at 2.4 Bs. Now, the futures curve says gas is going to average you know, 280 or 290 this year. I hope that's true. That requires quite a significant snapback in the second half of this year. Now, we had a pretty warm winter, so residential commercial is off. But the thing that's climbing in a significant way, which hasn't climbed, is look at the power line. It really hadn't increased too much in 20 and 21. It's now going up in a significant way. I think part of it is wind and solar uh, installations have been slower. Coal plants have been uh, closed. And so we're much more dependent on natural gas for power demand. So now, will gas get back repriced to around 40? I hope so. There is a page in here on natural gas stocks, uh, which is page 12. And these companies are very good companies. One of them, Antero, we helped start and still own a lot of, but there's nothing wrong with EQT or Chesapeake. These companies are trading enterprise value for under 10 times free cash flow. And that's based on gas being $3 this year. An extra dollar in uh, revenue if gas averaged four dollars next year would have a huge impact on these on these free cash flow numbers. This may represent an opportunity, but you know you, we really need a snapback in gas pricing. And unlike oil, that's independent of China. I mean, gas isn't really a internet. I mean, LNG is traded internationally, but our market is pretty contained within North America. So if you've always wanted to own a guest, it's probably time to pick your favorite. But because of the uncertainty in gas pricing, I would be a bit conservative. I would only buy a half position under the theory that if gas stays weak, you can buy the other half. If you compare what gas stocks trade for with 
what international companies, the largest companies trade for, turn to page nine. Here, similar, similar uh, methodology for enterprise value times free cash flow, and free cash flow, just to repeat, is after all capex, after all expenses. So it's the amount you could theoretically pay in a dividend. Two points about this. First of all, the enterprise time free cash flow, if, if the gas stocks are nine times, these are seven or eight times, so they're less. The other thing is <clears throat> uh, Berkshire Hathaway has established a big position in Oxy, and they sold some Chevron to balance it out. And you can see off these numbers that whether it's Buffett or the people that work for them, they're looking at Oxy and they're seeing it, you know, at five times rather than seven times. So that's why I think they continue to add to that position. Uh, they said at the annual meeting that they do not want to own 100% of Oxy. So, but, you know, one good investor's uh, way of thinking about the oil and gas business. Just while we're on oil, if we turn to page 11, uh, we have four companies that are more oil companies than gas companies. And of these, EOG really has the best record. If you talk to people in the business and you say, which large company seems to do the best job? 80% of them are going to say EOG. You can see on the same framework, they're trading at about over 10 times, 11 times free cash flow, where Magnolia, which is a much smaller company and, and new, is trading at like six times. doesn't necessarily mean Owning Magnolia is better than owning EOG. It's just a different company. Permian Resources is interesting. It's entirely Delaware. And Diamondback, which is about two-thirds Midland and one-third Delaware, definitely focused more on the Midland base than is around 10 times. There are two new companies this week. Uh, it was a long weekend, and believe me, I tried to add more than two new companies. But the two I was able to add, one is a long-term holding of Oak Cliff, which is Brian's partnership. Uh, my sons, page 14, added Transdyne to the comparison of Caterpillar Gear and Generac. Transdyne uh, makes parts that go into airplanes, commercial airplanes, and their strategy is to have them be approved by the FAA, and then when parts wear out or need to be replaced or whatnot, they can charge a pretty full price for it. It's been public for a while. It has quite a lot of debt. You see, it has $19 billion of debt. They have no dividend. What they do is they'll, they'll run their free cash flow, which I make it something under $2 billion. They'll pay their debt down. So if past history uh, holds, they'll pay their debt from 19 billion down to 14. And then They'll take a $5 billion. I mean, the total market value of the company is 44. They'll take a 5 or $6 billion special dividend, run their debt down, and then run it, run it back down. Now, at 30 times free cash flow, this is pretty expensive. But I think it's, it's a good company to put on the same page with these other manufacturing businesses. And uh, Mike keeps track of which companies have done best since they've come public. And I think Transdime is in the top 10, Mike, if I remember correctly, but over to you for comment on that. 
Oh, it's not in our weekly email because I took it out of the list when we consolidated to the 30-pager. So you'll have to get the email this week that will have it in the list, and you'll find out right. where it lands. It should be in approximately the top 10, though. One of the things Mike has found, I mean, one of my favorites, of course, is Fastenal, and I will work to do a page 21, which has Fastenal and another com- couple of companies on it. But I think Fastenal has been public for about 30 years and when you bought it, it was quite small, but it's it's done extremely well since it came public. I think if you invested nine thousand dollars when it came public, combination of dividends and market value is seven million dollars. So, one of the things Mike has found in looking at companies since they've come public, even the real performers like Fastenal or Transtime was one of those or Apple, or Microsoft, or uh, Meta, or Alphabet, over a long period of time, you know, 15 or 20 years, getting into the 20s in terms of compound rate of return is quite an achievement. It's, it's very interesting to see how, how uh, something grows at that rate for a long period of time, 20 years. It's amazing how much money accumulates. It's, a, it's an argument for persistence and and not selling even if you feel like it's gotten too expensive. Yeah. Yeah. The other company was added is on page 15, which uh, we spent time on in past Wednesdays because I became fascinated since I love cash on balance sheets, lack of debt. I became fascinated with Moderna and BioNTech because while the the COVID vaccines are going to be way less used, than they have been. The cash that's piled up in these two companies is quite remarkable. If you look at, I, I say, debt net, well, a, a bracket on that means that $10 billion of cash is piled up in Moderna. But look at BioNTech, which was Pfizer's partner, $18 billion of euros is piled up. So they're trading uh, and are trading at around 27 billion euros. Well, the difference between what they're trading for and the cash is only $9 billion of euros. This was a company that was considered to have some real promise and came up with one of the two vaccines. I mean, Pfizer didn't come up with the vaccine, BioNTech did. So, you know, is that got more value than $9 billion euros? I think so. But there are two other healthcare companies here one is Lantheus, which we've talked about. And if you look at Lantheus, they have a little bit of debt, but not very much. And they have, you know, $300 million or $280 million of free cash flow. But the one I added this this week, Vertex, another company that uh, Mike and Jason have been spending a lot of time on. And Mike and I talk for about 20 minutes every morning, Monday through Friday, 5.30 his time, 8.30 my time. And I, I had a funny expression as I spent time on Vertex last weekend. I said, did the $11 billion of cash that's accumulated there, was that from doing a big stock offering and, and, and hanging on to the money? Or, or, or was that, did they make that out of cash flow? Well, if you look at free cash flow last year, it was $3 billion. So Mike went back and looked at some of the history and, we think that most of that $11 billion has been made out of cash flow. I think good to take a break here and 
I might quickly summarize what Lantheus does and, uh, and what Vertex does, and we'd be much better off. Jason is much closer to these companies, but Mike's going to do a good stand-in for, uh, for what Jason would, would speak to on Lantheus and Vertex. Over to you, Mike. Sure. So I'll start by kind of laying out what we think we like about biotech in general. We like to try to find companies that have good, steady cash flows and that have shown the ability to invest those cash flows responsibly. And because there's a lot of companies that have a big pile of cash but are burning through it in hopes of landing on a solution. And it's a little more like gambling than what we would get comfortable with in most cases. But if finding a company like Vertex or Lantheus, we think you, we can kind of have the best of both worlds. You can buy a, a best-in-class company that also has an asymmetric upside. And uh, I'll go and go through Vertex really quickly. So Vertex has, the, their main revenue driver is their treatments for cystic fibrosis. It's a relatively small patient population, I think 88,000 patients. However, they're very expensive to treat. So the revenue generated from them is pretty high. They have a, a pipeline that includes a bunch of different stuff. And I won't go too in the weeds on pipeline, but I want to cover two things that I think that we're most excited about. The first one is a um, sickle cell treatment. And if this gets approved, it will be the first CRISPR-based gene editing therapy of its kind approved. And the patient population is very expensive to treat. I think three to $4 million per patient over the course of their lifetime. So wherever this thing gets priced at, it will be revolutionary for those patients. And ideally, it drives down the cost of providing care to those patients. So that one's a pretty cool one. The second one that we're excited about is they're working on a non-opioid painkiller. So I don't know a single doctor or anyone anywhere that would recommend someone take an opioid over something that is non-addictive and assuming it does the same job. And that seems to be the direction of, of where this thing is going. So uh, back to, so from Vertex's perspective, we like their cystic fibrosis business. We think that these couple things in the pipeline that, that they also have a phase one, two that as a treatment for diabetes. So there's some really um, interesting opportunities there. You don't want to discount too much, put too much value in, in these, these things that haven't gotten through trials. But if, if you can find something at a fair price, which we think Vertex is, that has those things as additional upside, we think that's a good place to be. So Lantheus is similar in that they made a sort of aggressive acquisition of a company that had lost a patent suit and then filed the, um, the appeal and won the appeal after they acquired the business. It's basically a better diagnostic that's being used for uh, prostate cancer, and it is an order of magnitude better than the existing solution. And you can kind of see that by the uptake in how much it's and how quickly it's being adopted by doctors and patients. So the excitement about that company is the ability to deliver treatments using the same science essentially of as to how they deliver the imaging material. So, so if they can deliver treatment in the same way, I, in other words, attaching to the cancer cells directly, 
uh, that ends up being a very attractive way to have an upside in a company that was previously just a well-run diagnostic business. So again, from a management perspective, we're really impressed with the management, their capital allocation abilities. We think it's a good business at a relatively fair, fair price. And again, with a, a, a nice positive upside. We want to turn to page three now, which is the NVIDIA page. Mike and I are determined that NVIDIA, which Mike and Jason have spent a lot of time on, is you know a huge success. You can see the last time we updated these numbers is the middle of April. The total market value of NVIDIA was $630 million. I was up a lot from the beginning of the year when the total market value was probably 200 to 250. It's now a trillion. The free cash flow of 3.7 billion is going to have to be much, much larger to justify a trillion dollar valuation. If you look at the way Microsoft and Apple are traded, they traded about 30 times free cash flow. So you divide 30 into a trillion dollars, you need 30 billion of free cash flow. Now, that may happen with NVIDIA. AMD it looks like a less expensive way to participate in this server farms and whatnot. Intel looks hung out to dry. Unfortunately, one of the great American companies that Mike and Jason have consistently said just not likely to be able to recover and then, of course, Taiwan Semiconductor, where all of this material or a lot high portion of this material is made. But, you know, I think our job as investors is to find things that have that same kind of upside potential and will not abandon looking at chips or looking at software or or something we haven't covered here in, in Mike and Jason's case, looking at sports strengths. But but we want to focus on on areas that can be have future upside, like NVIDIA's had from uh, AI. Trees don't grow to the high, but before we break off, we're now about two minutes over. We're going to spend the last three minutes on getting an assessment from Mike on uh, whether all the... Uh, publicity and, and upward stock movement in NVIDIA is uh, just a commentary on it. Over to you, Mike. Yeah, so this has been, well, NVIDIA is a company we've been invested in for a long time. I think it was 2015 or 2016 when we first put a position on, and it was clear to us then that NVIDIA would be the leader in artificial intelligence. Over the ensuing years, Yes, the artificial intelligence side of the business has been there and growing, but it was distracted in two huge waves of, of essentially a bubble within the, the stock <laughs> due to crypto. The first one culminated at some point in uh, 2018, and the second one during COVID. And I, I think it's a good example of how um, it's hard to hold on to a stock, even though you, you truly believe in where it's going. Sometimes it does get overvalued and you feel compelled to sell some of it. In hindsight, and I will probably for the rest of my life be debriefing our decisions for NVIDIA, but in hindsight, we should have kept every last share of it and never sold it. Um, but over time, we did sell some, and fortunately, we still have a sizable chunk and, and have done quite well with it. 
I don't think it will be easy for anyone to usurp their position. And I think that for us to find the next NVIDIA, it, it'll be helpful to go look where no one else is looking. Because in 2015, 2016, there wasn't a single analyst report that mentioned anything about AI in uh, NVIDIA. That, that was the story, and that was where the company was going and, and whatnot. But the general market wasn't aware of it. So I'd say right now, more semiconductor stocks that are related to AI are probably better short candidates than long candidates. And we have to look elsewhere probably since this is where everybody's looking right now to make money. Great. Please everyone stay well, stay healthy and we'll be on and we'll, we'll have Jason next time. So hopefully, hopefully uh, Jason will agree that we did an okay 30 minutes without him. Take care everyone. Bye-bye. The views expressed on this podcast are the hosts alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the hosts nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned. 